cherish to my grave If you should die before I do cherish to my grave if you should die before i do Listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim Dwyer is uh, stranded in Jackson, sort of. <laughs> no, I guess Jim Dwyer's uh, wonderful daughters, one of them is moving away and they're doing some father daughter things these days. As sort of parting activity before she leaves for the great Northwest. But anyway, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Kind of an interesting week, obviously. Uh, I don't think I'm going to go over too much of the horrid story going on in the Middle East because uh, that's uh, ongoing. Apparently, another ceasefire, but that will probably be broken. And it's a little unclear what the end game is with these parties. Of course, we've got some interesting local news. Elections tomorrow here in the state of Michigan. Interesting races here in the state of Ann, uh, in the city of Ann Arbor with mayoral primaries and whatnot. So we do encourage you to go out and vote. Uh, there is an important proposition on the ballot that is uh, deceptively cause, called the personal property tax initiative. Uh, it's sort of complicated, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but uh, suffice to say that the corporations are trying to repeal this uh, revenue, uh, this tax on equipment uh, is, is what it's called, even though it's called personal property. And it's very vague how the uh, state legislature is going to replace the funding should it pass. This is kind of an example of Congress uh, sometimes uh, or the, in this case, the state legislature uh, fobbing off its responsibilities to the voters. I remember back in the 1990s, uh, Michigan raised its sales tax by two cents. It went from four cents to six cents after John Engler created a funding crisis in the uh, public schools uh, statewide. And they rammed through a sales tax increase in August when very few people are voting. So this is rather unfortunate. Uh, all of the uh, experts on state politics are predicting 
uh, maybe a 20% turnout, as there are no really exciting statewide primaries, but there are certainly local races, congressional races, and all sorts of other stuff. So we do encourage you to vote, educate yourself on this uh, Proposition 1, uh, make sure you understand the wording, because I understand it's complicated. Might even want to read Proposition 1 before you go into the voting booth, because <laughs> that's always uh, problematic with these uh, complicated propositions. And another very interesting story locally that's uh, made some national news that I'll just comment briefly. Uh, today, the city of Toledo, which has been affected by the uh, so-called algae bloom, which contaminated the drinking water. They uh, had no drinking water uh, over the weekend and were even telling people not to bathe. Uh, <clears throat> pretty much shut down the city of Toledo for several days. Uh, that ban has now been lifted. Uh, and this, of course, affected some communities here in the state of Michigan. Lake Erie is a uh, one of the Great Lakes. And as usual, it's always interesting to learn where our water comes from. To quote and paraphrase a famous poet, I kind of always have remembered this line because I love its succinctness. W.H. Auden once said, Many have lived without love. Nobody has lived without water. And it turns out, and I actually learned some stuff today on NPR about the uh, watershed involving this problem here in Lake, with Lake Erie. In today's New York Times, by the way, they have a fascinating, and a picture's worth a thousand words, as they say. They have a picture of how green this water really is. There's a clear glass with uh, what can only be described as green slime that sort of resembles the color, as the article points out, of the Wizard of Oz, quote, lime green, or uh, the color of pea soup, uh, similar to the tone of the Incredible Hulk. And there is a hand with a glass three-quarters full with the, the water that we're looking at. And even more interesting to me is the aerial shot of Lake Erie. Uh, which shows uh, Lake Erie from end to end. You can even uh, distinctly see the, the city of Cleveland and its outline. Cleveland, of course, a major polluter over the years. Uh, the Just for the historical record, the Clean Water Act actually emanated out of the infamous uh, instance when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Uh, back in 1969, this is what led to the uh, creation of Earth Day, the Clean Water Act, and several of the uh, domestic pieces of legislation that Richard Nixon actually signed, and we'll talk about him in due course here. But this toxin caused by the algae uh, can cause uh, diarrhea, vomiting, abnormal liver function, and all sorts of other undesirable things that human beings don't want to experience. So we had a major uh, <clears throat> state of emergency. Uh, the Ohio National Guard was called out by John Kasich. And, of course, uh, there were some smaller communities here in the state of Michigan that were affected. Uh, Toledo, is, of course, is a large city with uh, roughly 500,000 residents. Probably the suburban area might include another 250,000. But what's interesting that I learned today from a professor at... Uh, <laughs> 
our erstwhile rival, Ohio State, who's been working on the Lake Erie algae bloom problem dating back to the 1970s. He pointed out that the uh, lake was very in very bad shape back then, and it took uh, aggressive action to clean up the water. Uh, of course, these algae blooms are caused by over-fertilized agricultural fields with uh, runoff, malfunctioning septic systems, and a livestock uh, manure-related material that gets into the water. It turns out that the uh, River of Maumee, uh, which uh, is the main river in Toledo, the watershed actually starts in uh, around the Fort Wayne, Indiana area. So what we're talking about here, folks, is an area that includes northwest Indiana, southeast Michigan, and, of course, northwest Ohio. And this uh, Lake Maumee, or the River Maumee, dumps uh, its water eventually into Lake Erie. And the algae bloom that you can see on the aerial shot in today's New York Times, and I've uh, quoted a couple of things here, are factually by the reporter Emma G. Fitz. Uh, Fitzsimmons, uh, shows that there is an area that I would say extends from Toledo down to about Cedar Point. It's probably as large, you know, it's probably 2,500 square miles. Um, Huge. Uh, And this area looks like it's highly polluted with this algae. And this has got to be uh, something that probably this tri-state area is going to have to work on. Of course, uh, throughout uh, the 20th century, uh, corporations here in the United States were exceedingly reckless, uh, dumping um, sewage, uh, which, by the way, was the original cause of the algae bloom explosion in the early 70s, according to this professor at Ohio State. Uh, Now, of course, it's caused by... Essentially, the organophosphates in agricultural runoff, and if you've noticed the last couple of years, while this may not be true of uh, uh, Ann Arbor area, uh, Ohio has had considerably more rain uh, in the last couple of years as a result of the climate change. And while they're experiencing drought out in the southwest, including major problems in the state of California, uh, the predicted weather pattern in, uh, with climate change suggests that uh, uh, states east of the Mississippi are going to be wetter uh, areas. And uh, I know that in my hometown of Athens, the Hocking River is uh, higher than normal. So uh, there's been a lot of rain uh, in the Ohio area the last couple of years, and this has probably contributed to the buildup of organophosphates. Phosphorus, by the way, is the particular culprit in the creation of this algae that turns out to be toxic. And uh, I would say that it's very important, and of course a lot of people that live in rural areas use what are known as septic tanks as their uh, human waste disposal system. And most humans uh, in America don't realize that when you flush the toilet that the material has to go somewhere. And in rural areas they don't have city... um, sewage systems that clean the water. You know, it was interesting, a couple of years ago, uh, they interviewed scientists uh, around the, the uh, um, world to find out what was the most important invention 
in the sort of the history of science over the last 150 years. One might suspect it would have been the light bulb, perhaps the telephone. Well, it turned out to be modern sewage because uh, even our big cities, uh, people used to just throw the stuff out in the street. And this, of course, caused cholera. And uh, this is why we see in many third world countries so many health problems connected to contaminated water. Well, this water in Lake Erie in the Toledo area is obviously uh, somewhat contaminated. And I guess we have to give some kudos to the city of Toledo for very aggressively dealing with this problem. Apparently, the mayor of Toledo today uh, publicly, when he made the announcement that it is now safe to drink the water in the uh, city of Toledo, uh, drank a glass of new water, and businesses have now decided to reopen, and the state of emergency has temporarily been suspended. But obviously, the long-term problem is not going to go away, and it strikes me that we might need some regional um, collaboration uh, regarding this uh, problem with the algae bloom in southwest Lake Erie. And this algae bloom, by the way, even extends up into Canada. You can tell from the aerial map. The distinctive state of Michigan in this interesting photograph in today's New York Times cannot really be seen, but we know where it is. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, Lake Erie uh, freezes frequently in the, uh, in the winter, and uh, it's a very important, you know, it was the Erie Canal, the Toledo, interestingly, at one point was the third largest rail hub in the United States, critical for getting uh, agricultural products from the uh, great Midwest out to those hungry, demanding people out east. And the Erie Canal was a cru crucial a component of our historical infrastructure that allowed cargo to be shipped uh, from the Midwest, the Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana-type areas to uh, places in upstate New York where it uh, made its way uh, eastward into major cities like Boston, Philadelphia, and New York City. So, uh, temporarily, good news regarding the ability to drink water in the city of Toledo. So yes, go down and check out the uh, Toledo Mud Hens. They are the <laughs> AAA uh, farm team of the Detroit Tigers. They do have a beautiful stadium right downtown, uh, paid for by the uh, ever, uh, you know, and I, 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 we knock corporations and rich people down here quite a bit for a, a lot of good reasons, but I think Mike Illich is one of the great... Um, men, billionaire types that steps forward and pays for things with his own money. He does not rely on taxpayers to build stadiums the way the wanker George W. Bush did regarding the Texas Rangers. Yes, taxpayers paid for the new baseball stadium in Arlington, Texas. George Bush made off with about $15 million. They put the money in, they enhanced the value of the team, and then they... Uh, took the money and ran because they sold the uh, team at, at one point. Uh, and this is an example of uh, what we call corporate welfare, crony capitalism, the kind of stuff that uh, <clears throat> troubles us down here on the Gray Matter Show. So uh, go check out the Toledo Mud Hens sometime. Got a brand new stadium. It's absolutely beautiful. 
And it's in right uh, downtown Toledo. And just for the record, Toledo has one of the best art museums in the United States. The Toledo uh, Art Museum, the Metropolitan, I guess is what they call it, is one of the outstanding art museums here in the United States. Uh, probably not as great as the DIA or <laughs> some of your great ones in New York City, but it is a, one of the top ten art museums. So make a day of it sometime. Go to the art museum in Toledo. Check out the Mud Hens. You might actually have some fun down there. All righty, well... <clears throat> Very quickly on the continuing violence in the Middle East, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Obviously, it remains unclear in my mind where this, how this is going uh, to turn out for Israel. Uh, the United States, of course, is the only entity in the world that can put pressure on Israel to stop this uh, carnage. Uh, there's no excuse for Hamas uh, continuing to breach uh, ceasefires with rocket random rocket attacks, but I think the disproportionality of the violence and the fact that uh, UN refugee facilities have been bombed by Israel is very troubling. And while uh, the uh, people in the state of Israel are supporting the uh, militarism of Netanyahu at this point, and even a large percentage of American uh, voters are backing Israel's uh, right to defend itself and all of that, uh, we really, at this point, need a permanent ceasefire. We need to get back to negotiations, and we need to see this uh, disproportionality um, ended. Um, I think that it's uh, very sad. Gaza is obviously a very messy situation. It's important to remember that um, Gaza was part of Egypt uh, when the 67 war started. And uh, Egypt is not really in a position to take it back at this point. They have their own uh, problems with violence and chaos. But um, the historical aspects of this, you know, where Hamas is going with this is, remains a little unclear to me. It's quite clear that Israel has moved the goalposts a couple of times. First it was the rocket attacks, then it was the tunnels. And now they are insisting on demilitarization, whatever the heck that means. Um, the um, residents of Gaza have no ability whatsoever to, to uh, deal with the air power that Israel uh, enjoys, the superiority. And, of course, that superiority is the direct result of uh, American economic and foreign aid. Um, lots of very interesting essays and material uh, recently about this complex situation. But I did want to read uh, a brief a paragraph that I think describes some of the problems that we're looking at. Obviously, Gaza is one of the most overpopulated and densely populated places on the planet. My own personal belief is that it's not viable as any sort of Palestinian state in connection with the West Bank. So I think that something needs to f be done with uh, the Gaza situation in, 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 the, in the long term. And I think that that needs to be part of the substantive negotiations that hopefully will, will take place sooner rather than later. But an essay in the London Review of Books dated July 3rd, which... Uh, 
actually sort of probably was published before this recent uh, violence erupted. You know, it's interesting to note that just a couple of weeks ago, on the 17th of July, the New York Times uh, had a front page story with the headline, Israeli invasion of Gaza is likely, official says, brief ceasefire is set. Uh, Because at the beginning of the crisis, obviously, um, Israel was just simply using airstrikes. At that point, uh, there were 214 Palestinian deaths. Uh, That number has skyrocketed. And uh, this uh, story by Jody Roderen, Ruderen, I guess is probably more accurate, um, accurately predicted that a ground invasion was imminent. And um, these attacks on these U.N. refugee facilities are simply unacceptable. Uh, And the United States, of course, has condemned them. But I don't know that they've put the necessary pressure on Israel to stop that sort of uh, military response. Frequently, they date these uh, when these essays were written. Uh, I'm assuming because this was published on the 3rd of July that this article actually preceded any um, rocket attacks by Hamas that started this crisis. And uh, Israel's response, of course, initially it was characterized as a response to the kidnapping that Israel claimed uh, Hamas was behind. Uh, They've not produced any evidence in that regard, by the way. And they, over the past week, claimed that there was a soldier that had been kidnapped. He turned out to have died in action, killed in action. So we've seen some exaggeration on their part uh, in terms of the propaganda. And I would suggest that while Israel has probably bolstered its... uh, Netanyahu has probably bolstered himself internally... Uh, the the world opinion is, at this point, beginning to work against Israel in the long term. And, of course, uh, the Israeli government is somewhat indifferent to uh, attacks on U.N. compounds, but I think I find that very unfortunate. Anyway, Raja Shehade uh, has an essay in the London Review of Books dated the 3rd of July, and she's got another one upcoming. This is part of an Edward Said series. Uh, he recently passed away, and she writes, the Palestinians who were forced out of their homes in 1948 were not regarded by Israel as refugees. That would have implied that Palestine was their country to which they would have the right to return. This was not the way that the Israelis saw it, and they did their best to make sure that return would never happen. It was therefore, in some sense, logical or even consistent that they were not given the same legal status as other international refugees when the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, UNHCR, was established in 1951. Palestinian refugees remain under the charge of a makeshift UN entity created in 1949 to take care of them. It's called the UN. Uh, relief and works agency. The arrangement meant that their needs were recognized, but their but not their rights. Today, 4.9 million Palestinian refugees, the largest number of refugees anywhere by country of origin, uh, failed to appear in any UNHCR statistics. Uh, so we have a kind of a 
a denial of reality here. Of course, uh, Palestinians fled uh, at the time in the 48 war their homes and were never allowed to get them back. And uh, as a result, they continue to be scattered around the Middle East, but are mainly, unfortunately, concentrated in Gaza and the West Bank. And, of course, over time, Israel has solidified uh, settlements, uh, built roads in the West Bank, and tried to establish facts on the ground that make uh, the return of the West Bank, that used to be known as the East Bank, it used to be Jordanian territory, um, almost impossible, if not difficult, uh, to uh, achieve. And, of course, these continuing issues regarding um, what Hamas's goals are strike me as part of the problem. It's a little murky what their objectives ultimately are. I heard a Middle East expert claim that they first want to uh, regain uh, some sort of control of Gaza. This is Hamas now. Uh, Then uh, the West Bank and then ultimately Jerusalem. But that uh, seems uh, decades away. And well, uh, they've m- maybe bolstered themselves uh, politically or, or emotionally, sort of uh, worldwide opinion, I think, is turning against Israel on this uh, carnage. Uh, I'm a little unclear uh, how, in the long run, this is going to benefit the Palestinian people. There simply are too many civilian victims in this uh, latest uh, mm, Tit for tat, tit for rat-a-tat-tat, whatever you want to call it. The force and the violence is uh, disproportionate. It needs to end. And I do think that uh, despite a lot of criticism, John Kerry's done about as well as he can, urging more ceasefires, and hopefully we can get a more permanent one, but uh, I wouldn't uh, bet the farm on it. Now, this is the uh, 40th anniversary of the resignation of Richard Nixon. (laughs) And I wanted to uh, highlight a couple of things that are, are in the media this uh, this past couple of weeks. A couple of new books have come out. It's my understanding, by the way, that Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein are going to have a lengthy interview on BBC uh, tomorrow, so you may want to check that out. I heard an interview last week with John Dean, who has now published a new book. Uh, he does not think that Richard Nixon ordered the burglary of Democratic headquarters. I think he's uh, surrendered to the idea that it was John Mitchell who did this and that there were vague orders within the White House that led to a kind of maniacal uh, search for power, um, this obsession with re-election and this enemies list and the whole paranoid uh, personality of Richard Nixon Richard Nixon, of course, is emerging uh, over time as a you know very important historical figure in American history because of his role in the anti-communist movement in the 1940s, uh, his somewhat unexplained role in some of the foreign policy maneuvers of the Eisenhower years. I think he had a much bigger role than has been previously revealed. And some of the mysteries surrounding Watergate. Obviously, we now know that Mark Felt was Deep Throat. Uh, He, of course, was the number two man in the FBI. I've been in connection with that, by the way. I've been reading a very interesting, outstanding book called The Burglary by Betty uh, Medzger, who worked at the Washington Post. This was about the uh, media burglars um, 
the media Pennsylvania burglary in which the a local FBI office was uh, burglarized by some anti-war activists. Some of them have now come out and admitted their role in this. And Betty Medjger was working at the Washington Post at the time and was one of three journalists that received documents from this burglary that revealed that the FBI was conducting a, a war against the uh, so-called New Left, which was basically the anti-war movement. Uh, this burglary, by the way, occurred the night of the Ali Frazier fight at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> These burglars decided that everybody would be watching the fight or listening to the fight or whatever. Apparently it wasn't actually on television here in the United States, but uh, people were probably listening on the radio. And under cover of the Ali, Bur uh, Ali uh, Frazier fight, Ali, of course, had uh, served jail time for refusing to serve in Vietnam. And Joe Frazier beat him that night, by the way. Ollie later recovered the title and all that. But uh, it's a really interesting book about how Jagger Hoover dealt with this problem. This, this occurred on March 8th of 1971 and how the rivalry with uh, he and Richard Nixon for power regarding the anti-war movement contributed to some of the problems that ultimately led to what we are now know as Watergate because we now know that... Uh, the Pentagon Papers uh, court decision was critical, uh, that Nixon uh, had created an enemies list, that there was bugging going on, that the FBI was engaged in break-ins, uh, illegal bugging. Um, some congressmen may have even had uh, their phones tapped. Very interesting, important new book uh, called The Burglary, The Discovery of Jagger Hoover's Secret FBI. And I think over the next couple of weeks, given the fact that uh, the 40th anniversary of Nixon's resignation, including uh, our own Gerald R. Ford, uh, University of Michigan graduate, taking over the presidency and then pardoning Richard Nixon for crimes that he may have committed, <laughs> that of course led to his own political problems, will remain an interesting story as we uh, go over these uh, 40th anniversaries. I encourage people to listen to the Woodward uh, Bernstein interview uh, on BBC tomorrow, and we'll talk more about the new book out by John Dean and Douglas Brinkley, an eminent historian. Anyway, we are out of time here on Gray Matters. You have been listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling with the Down Home Blues is coming up on this fine station. Your radio is on. It's on 88.3 FM. WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor's 24-hour open-minded radio surprise pudding. Licensed to the Regents of the University of Michigan. Operated by students at the University of Michigan. Uniquely maintained as a healthy alternative and a positive influence on the mental health of the Ann Arbor community. You are here. You are here, and the time is now 7.01, and you are at Yazoo, Sili Yazoo City Calling on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, broadcasting to you live every Monday at 7 p.m. from 